0: First Peter three verses one through eight, the architecture of life. First Peter three, one through eight. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is, in the sight of God, a great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham's calling in law, whose daughters he are, as long as he do well, and are not afraid of any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, well with them according to malice, giving honor unto the wife as unto the of vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not gentle. Finally, we all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love of brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. We have seen in the past year and a half in our studies of biblical law, it is basic to any understanding of scripture to realize that all of creation has a law structure. It is impossible to understand this world apart from the law structure of God which undergirds everything. To attempt to understand anything apart from the law structure is to attempt to understand man apart from his skeletal structure, apart from it man cannot live. When we recognize that law structure, then we can turn to any passage of scripture and see that law structure ...behind many declarations which do not deal directly with law. An excellent example of this is our scripture, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 8. A relationship or structure is here described. It presupposes at every point the seventh commandment, the biblical law concerning marriage... Also, laws concerning authority and it speaks of life itself as a grace from God to the faithful but how is this verse interpreted normally the usual interpretations are sometimes pathetic for example a very very large body of people who take this Verse seriously believe that it condemns the plaiting of hair and the wearing of gold. And so there actually are churches, sad to relate, that forbid braided hair and forbid gold jewelry. Now this of course is the perverse because there is nothing here that forbids these things. In fact, if you are to read this as forbidding the plating of hair and the wearing of gold, you've got to go on then and logically be, as some of these fundamentalistic churches, are not very definitely a nudist, because it goes on to say, or of putting on apparel. none of these groups take the logical step and go on and say you're not only forbidden to brave your hair and to wear gold jewelry you're also forbidden to put on any clothing any apparel but this would be the logic of their interpretation what of course Saint Peter here was talking about was that the adorning that is the Trust of the individual should not be in the ornamentation of outward things, whether a hairdress or of jewelry or of clothing, but a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. In other words, although very frequently Scripture speaks of the loveliness of beautiful clothing, of styles of hair, of jewelry, and speaks of these as good, it also insists that everything be put into perspective, that there is a structure in the universe, a structure which says that everything has its place. That it is only when certain things are taken out of place and out of context that they become wrong. The pure, St. Paul declares, all things are pure. Everything has its place in God's creation. So that it is not the thing which is of itself evil, but man's moral will man's nature which puts things to an ungodly use so that to the pure all things are pure and to be wicked nothing is pure everything is perverted everything is used this passage therefore rests on a law structure on a hierarchy if I may use that word, of that. What St. Peter is talking about appears in the second chapter, the ninth verse, that ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that is, a unique people, that he should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in the 13th verse he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king or under the governor or anyone. Every authority, therefore, is to be respected, not for its own sake, but for God's sake. Faithfulness requires to be that we meet our responsibilities in our appointed place, That your prayers be not hindered. The prayers of a man or the prayers of a woman are hindered if they do not meet their God-given responsibilities. If they are not of one mind having compassion one of another, loving one another, pitiful, courteous, Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary-wise, blessing. Only so, the ninth verse of the third chapter says, can you inherit a blessing from God? There is a structure. And all things have their focus in God. Every area of life must be God-centered or to live life on terms other than God's law allows is to deny him. We have, however, today a humanistic reordering of life. So that instead of all things being to the glory of God, and man's chief end being the glory of God, and to enjoy him forever, we see today that it's God's chief purpose To glorify man and to enjoy man as a result life is out of focus and everything is perverted the humanistic reordering of life is very vividly described in a recently published book a very superb biography of Louis XIV by Dr. John B. Wolfe and in the course of his analysis of Louis XIV he calls attention to the construction of Versailles. One of the greatest buildings ever put up by a man. A building which not only influenced the construction of every other palace that was subsequently built but also a government centers. In fact Versailles had a profound influence on Washington D.C. right down to the construction of the Pentagon and Dr. Wills traces this influence then he says by way of summing up the meaning of Versailles and I quote we cannot leave Versailles without reiterating that it had a purpose beyond the resurrection being the residence for the king and his government this great palace is a keystone in the new cult of royalty in the preceding eras the great constructions were usually to the glory of God even Philip II when he built his great palace made it a monastery with a chapel as the center of interest. at Versailles the bedroom of the king is the center, identifying the king as the highest power on earth, while the chapel is to one side. We might add, the chapel is still at last. The imposing grandeur of the chateau was evidence of the wealth of the kingdom, and its construction without walls and moats was proof of the power of the king's government. Versailles was a challenge, a defiance flung out of all Europe, as impressive a display of the wealth, power, and authority of the French king, as were its armies and its warships. Europe did not miss it. The centuries after the construction of Versailles, chateaus at Vienna, at Potsdam, at Dresden, at Munich, at St. Petersburg, and the very plan for the city of Washington, D.C., reflects the influence of the grandeur of Versailles, unquote. Versailles was significant, says Dr. Wolfe, because now, in the very construction of buildings, humanism came into play. Man was And this was carried out into every aspect of Louis XIV's regime. It was humanistic to the core. Now, ironically, Louis XIV himself was, in many respects, a devout man. And in his later days, after what really was the First World War of Europe, his regime was financially and very sad fights and he was increasingly unpopular. It was a time of long sadness for Louis XIV. reign was one of the longest of European history. And in his later years he spent much time in grief and long prayers and in the belief that God was judging him for his life. But, his prayers were useless because the essential humanism of his regime continued. The bedroom rather than the chapel was a fitting symbol. Life now had a new architecture, the architecture of humanism. This new architecture for life had been first established by the Renaissance, but it had given way to the Reformation and counter reformation and now, with the Enlightenment, was again the order of the day. Earlier, in the Renaissance, Boccaccio had stated the new premise of this new structure, this new architecture of life, when he wrote, and I quote, we have nothing in this world but what we enjoy, unquote. The new architecture of life that humanism gave became even more basic to the modern age with Hegel and Darwin. It took on a firmer, a harder shape with an ostensible foundation in science in the doctrine of evolution. The new doctrine of man and society and of the state Was what we analyzed last week as conversion downward. He used Kenneth Burke's phrase. A conversion downward of every aspect of life. At the beginning of this century, a Princeton professor, Henry Jones Ford, a very distinguished scholar, stated in a very important work and a most influential study, The Natural History of the State, An Introduction to Political Science. What the implications of the new science of the doctrine of evolution are for politics. And after his rather lengthy analysis, he, in his concluding chapter, sums up his thesis. The thesis, as he correctly saw, of all contemporary political science. I quote Proposition Man is the product of social evolution. Corollaries of this proposition affect the whole group of sciences pertaining to anthropology in the large sense of the word. They may be exhibited in several aspects as follows biological. The state is the permanent and universal frame of human existence. Man can no more get out of the state than a bird can fly out of the air. The undivided commune is the primordial form of the state, and it candidates the differentiation of man from the antecedent animal stock. The individual is a distinct entity in the unit life of the state. The individual is not an original, but is a derivative, political. Man did not make the state. The state made man. Man is born a political being. His nature was formed by a government, requires government, and seeks government. The state is absolute and unconditioned in its relation to its unit life. Government is conditioned by dependence of its functions upon structure, and hence it is subject to inherent limitations. There is no absolute norm of government, but every species of the state tends to produce the type proper to its characteristics in its particular environment. Profound changes of environment produce profound changes of government state species unable to effect readjustment of structure to meet new conditions tend to disappear so that from age to age there is a succession in state species analogous to that which takes place in biological species. Sovereignty is the supremacy of the state over all its parts. Ethical. Rights are not innate, but are derivative. They exist in the state, but not apart from the state. Hence, rights are correlated with duty. The object of the state is the perfecting of man, but the attainment of that object depends upon the perfecting of the state. The test of value in any institution is primarily not the advantage of the individual with the advantage of society. Individual life enlarges by participation in a larger life ascends by incorporation in a higher life unquote. The implications of this, of course, are far-reaching. Man is a creature not of God but of the state. The state is therefore sovereign. It is, in effect, man's God. The state, he says, makes man. There is no morality beyond the state. That which the state decrees is in and of itself right. The purpose of the state is to perfect man by controlling man. This means, therefore, as many have logically stated, that freedom is now obsolete. When I was in a forum in San Jose about a year ago, presided by over by a state senator with a uh, Stanford professor and another scholar and myself as speakers. One of the strongest objections to my position was made afterwards by a school teacher who felt that I was totally incapable of understanding this modern age because I did not realize, and these were her words, freedom is obsolete. Why? Because we are now in an era of science, and science cannot work if you do not have control. And the state to be a scientifically valid experiment requires total control over all factors. Thus, rights are derivative. They exist in the state, but not apart from the state. But, as Dr. Ford stated, changes of environment produce changes of government. But man's world, man's environment is constantly changing, and what does this mean? Exactly what he said. Perpetual changes of government. In other words, as the new left has logically stated, perpetual revolution. So that today the student rebellion represents a logical inference from the doctrine of evolution and the present political science. Perpetual revolution is a necessity if the architecture of life is determined by evolution. If the present scientific perspective is correct, these students are intellectually honest. They are taking what they have been taught and drawing the logical conclusions therefrom, and they are refusing to put up with halfway measures. We, in terms of scripture accept the fact that God is God creator of heaven and earth then we must draw the logical conclusion from our basic premise for it ceases the sound and the students have done justice to it The architecture of life is either governed from below by the primeval forces which govern man's progress or it is governed from above. If we accept the Bible then the architecture of life is structured with the enduring seal of God's law and must grow In terms of that structure. Of course, the most recent development of scientific perspective is that of Michel Foucault, a very brilliant French scholar who has declared that the logical conclusion of our thinking is not only the death of God, but the death of man. That Sartre is right in declaring that man is a futile passion. And therefore, the most logical step for that futile passion man to take is suicide. And therefore, his philosophy is called the death of man philosophy. And it is extremely powerful today in France. It has not yet had its influence in this country, but who called in an earlier work of considerable brilliance entitled Madness and Civilization, began his study with these words, we must renounce the convenience of terminal truth. There are no absolutes. There is then nothing to bind man to man, nor anything to bind man to life. There is no longer this structure of God's truth, and man cannot live apart from truth. And so the only conclusion as to Paul logically draws with his proof But St. Peter, in our text, gives a different picture of life. It deals with the relationship of man and woman, husband and wife. But behind it is the seal of God's law structure. Obedience to God is primary, then to all authority under God, in order to serve God acceptably and to enjoy life. And to have life as a great unless we see the totality of the structure and fulfill our relationship to God and to one another in God, to be of one mind, to have compassion one of another, to love, to be pitiful, to be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, then our prayers are not hindered and we inherit not judgment. A blessing. But today, too much of Christianity itself is humanistic. Anything which makes man, or the things of man, or man's goal, the end of life, is humanistic. be God-centered means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Today, on the one hand, we see among our Roman Catholic brethren that the church is equated with a kingdom so that the church is made the be-all and the end-all of the believer's life. This is humanism. It makes an institution basic rather than kingdom of God on the other hand Protestantism being mostly amillennial or premillennial despairs of the world and so it says to people come into the church for your refuge from the tribulation and all the evils that are to come and so again it limits the kingdom to the church and it does not see God's purpose of reconstruction God's power would be manifested in every realm of life. So that in either case, the structure of life is reduced to the church. And this is humanism. It is a reduction of the whole counsel of God. St. Peter did not, as we saw, condemn clothing or gold and silver or lovely paragraphs. They have their place. And so, too, do church, state, school, and all things else have their place. So, too, do our feelings have their place. But we can never say that how I feel about something is more important than my duty under God. To do so is to be guilty of humanity chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to magnify God in every area of life. God's law alone suffices as the structure and architecture of life. Apart from that, our prayers are empty. Louis XIV is a tragic figure Few monarchs of more intellectual power, few monarchs who achieved more of their lifetime. And yet, his latter years spent in tears and in prayer, but it all nothing. His prayers were hindered. Because the basic architecture of his life remains the last, even as the architecture of Versailles, humanistic. The architecture of our life must come from the seal of God's law, word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks unto Thee, that of Thy grace and Thy mercy Thou hast called us to be Thy people, and given unto us Thy law and word. Make us ever mindful, our Father, of Thy sovereignty, so that we never may put an institution, ourselves, our feelings. Of that which thou dost require us. Give us grace to serve thee as we follow, to rejoice in thy blessing, in everything to give thanks, knowing that this is thy gift for us. Bless us for this purpose in Jesus' name. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. I I can't hear you. grace of God must be operative but God's sovereignty does not destroy human responsibility we have an obligation an urgent obligation to teach because apart from that we are guilty and we have this requirement from our Lord himself who said go ye unto all nations. And he said, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. So, the responsibility is ours to teach. We cannot convert. God does that. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So, the requirement to educate is given to us by God. We are then innocent of any man's blood, as Ezekiel says. Yes. them are going in turn to what they're taught. The overwhelming majority, I think, definitely subscribe to this. The more intellectually vigorous carry it to its logical conclusion. They are being educated, but ultimately their own responsibility must be, uh, question? Yes. I can't. can't. Very definitely. Very definitely. Christians should set up Christian schools. Because the public schools are socialistic schools, they are humanistic schools, they are very successful in teaching statism. This is their purpose. There is no such thing as neutrality or objectivity. The great contribution of the Marxists in education has been that they have very effectively challenged and shattered the idea that there is any such thing as an objectivity. We don't hold to the fact that it is class-conditioned, but we must agree with them that everyone's perspective governs that which they teach. Now, this does not mean that truth is impossible for any man to attain, but it does mean that every person's perspective is governed by their presuppositions. So there's no such thing as an objective education which everyone can get. Education is definitely in terms of a perspective. Therefore, unless we want our children alienated, we need to have schools which will teach our perspective. I'd like to read something that I have here in my briefcase, which I think is quite an interesting quote. It is from... The December 1963 Realites, a French periodical of considerable interest, and it is an article titled, Turning the Tables on Arithmetic, by a French scholar, Daniel Hunebel, and this is... uh a very interesting program as he describes a Belgian scholar and his work in mathematics and of course this is the new math he's talking about a particular version of it developed by this man uh, Papi what is Papi doing he is trying to create elementary mathematics in harmony with modern mathematics based on sex for example He tells beginners, you are going to create a set. Then the child will suggest some kind of odd set. A teacher, a pickle, and a pinch of salt. Now look how important my decision is, Pappy told me. I call this set S. It now exists because I have created it. In old mathematics, you contemplated a pre-established world. Today it is I, it is the child, who creates this world, who takes decisions, and who is aware of the fact that he is society. Do you get the point, of The old mathematics deals with a God-created, pre-established world. But in this new math, this was written in 1963, we create our own worlds as we go along. Now, there it is, very honestly stated if the bible represents our faith then we cannot agree with that but it's not this is logical it takes a presupposition and marches honestly to its conclusion so you either have to have a school in terms of that premise or in terms of our premise. Yes, someone who comes to this meeting, but is not here today, told me a while back, just uh, a few months ago, of a statement made almost re- every week and sometimes every day by a particular professor of education. And the statement was this. We cannot speak about the content of education because in a continually changing world, how do we know whether the content of today is valid when the crowd goes up? Therefore, we cannot educate in terms of specific ideas or concepts or subjects we must educate in terms of change perpetual change perpetual revolution and when he was asked if that were a logical inference uh, after some reflection by the particular person
1: he said oh yes
0: no question about So you see, if you do believe that there is no absolute, if there is no God and no
1: absolute truth,
0: then, to be honest, you have to insist on perpetual revolution, perpetual change, as Dr. Ford did at the beginning of this century in the quotation I said. Well, without God there could be nothing. Without God there could be nothing, not even a revolution. it is always a miracle wherever they are converted but of course as so many people I know who are Christians they their feeling is I've had to outgrow my education and of course that was the case with me I spent about six or seven years at Berkeley and uh I had one professor from whom I learned a great deal and two others from whom I learned a little bit. The rest I endured and I had finally to outgrow because what I got was so off base. with respect to the International Monetary Fund and its announcements with respect to paper gold, is that the case? The paper gold, of course, has been widely announced, and uh, what it amounted to is a bookkeeping entry. What is the need for paper gold? It's precisely this. Originally, we had the gold Standard. We still do, but not as directly. The gold standard meant that nations and businesses, as they settled up accounts at the end of a year or a stated period, if there was any balance, it was settled in gold, one paying the other their indebtedness in gold. Then in 1922, At Rapallo, the gold exchange standard was set up. International trade was still tied to gold, but it was agreed that a currency which was based on the gold standard could be acceptable. It could be cashed in, but they agreed that there would be no pressure. But, instead of settling up at the end of the year in actual gold they could settle in pounds or in dollars which were tied to gold now the temptation here was this and of course it was fully abused these paper currencies pounds and dollars are checks as all paper currencies are and originally they said payable to the bearer on demand so much in gold and so much in the silver, primarily in gold. However, both countries began to issue several times as much checks overseas as they had reserved. We have we claim we have still ten billion in gold. We have a, a minimum of thirty nine billion. And paper dollars outstanding in the hands of foreign governments. Some put it as high as 50 billion. It, it, it's the same as if you wrote checks for 40 to 50,000 when you had 5 to 10,000 in the bank. You'd be in trouble. Britain is in even worse trouble. They have checks to the tune of about 12 for every one in reserve. Now, this means the two deadbeat countries in international trade are Britain and the United States, in particular Britain. All of them are, to some degree, uh, in trouble. So they don't want the checks cashed. And they're begging that they don't cash in too many of them. So they want a third suspect from the gold standard to the gold exchange standard. Now, they're setting up the special drawing rights, or SDRs, against which every country has to deposit with the IMF so much in gold. Then, against this gold that is put up by various countries, the countries who cannot get a loan from everybody else, in other words, the bad-risk countries, and then get a loan, which will be a, an entry in the book. There won't be anything printed again, but they'll be given so much credit in foreign trade. Now, this really amounts to nothing because the total amount of SDRs for the next three years is 9.5 billion dollars. means that spread out to all the countries it adds up to very little per year. It's a little over three billion a year. Divide that three billion by the various countries who want a share of it, and it adds up to very little say for Britain and the United States, even though we have or oh, over 1,250 votes in the IMF. We stacked it pretty well for ourselves at the very beginning. So we've got a lot more votes than other countries, more than we're entitled to right now. The votes are based on the amount of gold. Well, what value is that? Our deficit domestically, And our deficit in foreign trade runs into the billions every year. And what would a few hundred million a year add up to in the face of that? Nothing. And who, when they are are holding, what amounts to a bad check, will be satisfied with another check that you can't cash. Now, the papers have had a lot to say about this paper gold, and the main purpose of this paper gold is to fool the public, to assure them that everything is being taken care of. But in the past week, there have been two significant acts. What? Germany. Germany has been begged by the IMF to allow them to revalue the mark upward. The exchange rates internationally are all set by the IMF, by agreement. And virtually every country except the Soviet Union is in the IMF. Germany allowed the mark to take its free place on the market. So, it began to go upward, but not the way the IMF wanted, which was to value it very high, which would make the Volkswagen, for example, sell at a very high price in the United States and price itself out of competing with our sports cars. So, By allowing it to float freely on the market, what they did was actually not to revalue the mark, but to revalue the dollar and pound in relationship to the mark. In other words, the dollar and the pound dropped. In other words, the IMF was not obeyed. It was bypassed. They said, when we find the new rate, we'll set it. We're working with the IMF, but that was face-saving, not good. Then the Wall Street Journal revealed a couple of days ago that the various countries had purchased $100 million in gold in defiance of the IMF. Now, this means that the IMF, which since World War II has controlled international trade, international monetary exchange, and so on, is in about the same place as the League of Nations was when Italy defied it. Ethiopia. It continued to exist for some time after that. The IMF is still important. But right. in a week, it has twice been defied in a very serious way. So it looks as though increasingly the IMF will be important as a public relations media uh, whereby the uh, public will be given the idea that international finances are being brought under control and there is no problem but the nations have already indicated they are when the chips are down going to do pretty much as they please so the prospect is not at all good for any country at present and fragmentation increasingly will take place. It will be, to to quote the words of one very, very brilliant economist, every dog who is going kennel. Well, our time is up.